This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Hello, nice to have you along with me this Friday afternoon. Coming to you around the state from Carrathra, I'm up in the Pilbara, and it will bring you to pastoral country today because some big changes have come into effect. Pastoral land reform. We've been talking about it for years in WA and it is here. The reform officially coming into effect yesterday. There are changes to the possible length of your lease how your pastoral rents are calculated and there's a whole new lease type, the diversification lease up for grabs. After half past 12, you'll hear more about what that may mean for you. And if you've got a take you'd like to share, 0448 922 604 is the text line. You'll also catch up with the Bureau of Meteorology after half past 12. And after a three-week recess, the wool market was back on today. So I'll bring you those results before one o'clock. It's six past 12 on the Country Hour. Competition is on the way for Western Australia's grains industry. WA's three grain grower lobby groups say they see significant potential for the industry in plans to introduce competition into the grain supply chain. Currently, the grower-owned cooperative CBH Group dominates grain handling in the state, but it's been copping criticism around struggles to move record amounts of grain and the impact that that's had on pricing. So I wonder, would you back a new player in the grain handling space, one to open new pathways to port, to get grain flowing faster to export markets and to help growers in WA reach world price parity? Let me know your thoughts on the text this afternoon, 0448 922 Representatives from the three key lobby groups have been investigating what impact this new player in the grain handling space might have. They've been looking at a trans-shipping model from potential new shallow water ports around WA. And the three have recently come back from an interstate trip to see how the model would work firsthand. So what did they learn? We're joined by Gary McGill, the chair of the Pastoralist and Graziers Association Grains Committee and farms in Kalingri and Balladew. Alistair Falconer is the chair of WA Grains Group and a grower from Karoo. And Mark Fowler, the president of WA Farmers Grain Section and farms in Williams and Harris Smith. Gary, let's kick off with you. After seeing the operations in South Australia, you're pretty impressed by what you saw? Uh, yes, unfortunately, Alistair wasn't able to join. He had to withdraw just at the last minute. But uh, he was—he's been uh, fully briefed by us and has an understanding of what we saw. Yes, we—we we were quite quite impressed by the whole process over there. The transshipment vessel—we got to inspect it. We saw the port side loading. We saw all the upcountry aggregation points. We talked to growers uh, and the trade, and so we came away quite impressed by what we saw. What about it impressed you? I think the ability for them to gather grain from upcountry to port and then transshipment out onto the ocean, uh, that's a new concept for for Australia and uh, it's now been in operation in South Australia for, what, three or four years now. Uh, and uh, it was very impressive to see how they were able to do that. We were quite interested to see the transshipment vessel 
uh, in uh, not exactly in operation, but it was there at Portside and we inspected it and it was quite impressive. Mark, how do you see this kind of model operating? What you saw in South Australia, how could that be replicated for WA? Michelle, I, I think they would be. Uh, this could be rolled out in WA in a, in a similar way in which it's been rolled out in South Australia. In South Australia, uh, it needs to be acknowledged that their existing bulk handler that was there, their infrastructure is very much inferior to what we have here. Um, but the growers that we spoke to felt it added a really effective addition to their, their supply chain capacity. And in the last year when we've had greater supply than there is capacity to take grain to port all around the country, they enjoyed port prices that were almost throughout the year $40 better than the prices that were uh, seen elsewhere around the country. So we see that there's potential to do the same here in an oversupplied market if it occurs. We think this should be seen as in no way as a as a threat or a criticism of CBH or the full realisation of their path to 2033 strategy. We see this as being something that could be complementary to the activities and strategies of CBH in a way that creates value for, for all stakeholders in the supply chain. And we will get into some of those questions around the competition in just a moment, but I'm really interested, Alastair Falconer, what do you think about logistically how this transshipping model could work in WA? Um, look, I, I think it's got some real potential. Um, if you look at, you know, the possibility of putting the transshipping ports along the coast between Perth and Geraldton, there's, you know, it's a different pathway to a port. Um, it takes the pressure off the existing pathways that go into the Geraldton and Quinana ports. So it, it'll it'll take the pressure off CBH on a big season and, you know, it gets our grain to an area where you can backload lime sand and things like that too. So logistically, I think it's it's got some real positives. So essentially it would work by growers would be delivering their grain directly to the port instead of at a receival site sort of upstream and then that grain at the, the port location would then be barged out to a, a vessel in deeper ports. Is that the case, Gary? It's a combination of both in South Australia because of the way the geographical circumstance lends itself. I think in Western Australia, the model would be that there would be significant upcountry aggregation to support the port uh, loading circumstances. I do know that that's how they are looking at things in Western Australia. So where they put those, it's up to them. They've signalled their intention to have uh, perhaps uh, three ports on the west coast, potentially one on the south coast, which will be supported by upcountry aggregation, just bulkheads, just as we all know them. The ones we saw in South Australia, high quality, exactly the same as what everybody is used to, and uh, that will probably be the model here, more upcountry aggregation to support. There might be some uh, direct port access at times, depending on the distance that growers may have to, uh, to travel, but mostly it'll be upcountry aggregation. And you mentioned they, Gary McGill. Who are they? Who, who do you mean with the? Who, who who's the company that you're talking uh, about here in uh, South uh, Australia? It's uh, T Ports. Is it T yeah. Ports looking to come to WA? No, it's not. Our understanding is that when T Ports completed the projects in South Australia, uh, there was some thought that that uh, they might turn their attention to Western Australia, and for their reasons, they didn't. But people involved um, decided that Western Australia had some opportunity. There was some. Uh, market failure starting to appear a little bit in the last couple of years. So some people talked to them about coming over and they had a good look. And uh, so people involved in the old T-Ports arrangement have now created their own 
entity and uh, are the ones that are behind this. I think they loosely call themselves at this stage uh, a group called Sea Transport and uh, that's uh, the, the, the entity that is looking at the West Australian opportunities. How seriously are they looking at WA, do you think, Mark Fowler? Oh, look, I think what grain growers have seen in Western Australia in the last two years is um, whilst they have been... We've seen a good season and we've seen good prices at the farm gate. They would have been much better where we were able to get all of our grain um, to port within within a year. And because of the supply chain challenges, and there's no criticism of CBH here, you know, it's been this has been a challenge all around the country, but the opportunity cost has been immense. Growers um, have, we think, lost the opportunity to sell in the order of two, two and a half billion dollars worth of grain pricing because prices have been discounted because of um, the supply chain challenges, getting grain to port from upcountry within a year and ideally before the commencement of the Northern Hemisphere harvest when, when, when there's much more supply available globally. Now, I think the uh, other player or players have, have looked at that opportunity in Western Australia. Western Australia has had two 25 million tonne harvests, thereabouts. So there's, a, there's clearly an opportunity to deliver greater value or address that situation in a way that returns values to growers and creates an opportunity for them in the market. If you can buy grain and, and sell it at international parity pricing, um, there's an opportunity there. So this is what always happens when there's a shortfall or, or, or a failure in the market as the market responds and that's what we see is happening here. So it sounds like this is an inevitability. If I may say, just if I could go back to your other question, Michelle, how serious are they, the proponents, uh, Mark and, and myself, and of course, unfortunately, Alistair wasn't actually there, but Mark and myself spent three days in the company of the proponents, going right across all the, the situations there. And I think it's fair that we came away thinking that they are quite serious. Uh, as we speak today, they are, we understand they're quite uh, well down the pathway of developing this project for Western Australia. This is probably going to be a four or five year type time frame, uh, but I think we have a reasonable level of confidence that they are serious uh, uh, and looking at the opportunities for Western Australia. I think it's it's timely to mention that the CBH Path to 2033 strategy was put together with a, an evolving trajectory of Australian West Australian grain production estimates, and the likelihood now that which has happened since that strategy was developed, the likelihood that that the live sheep trade could be banned has happened since that time. So there's potentially another million hectares of crop that could go in the ground. Um, that probably hasn't been factored into that, that model. It, it undoubtedly is now, um, but it, it adds some extra capacity to take account of that extra production, which hopefully will give us the capacity to handle the extra tonnes. And uh, I was talking to Gary about this this morning. If growers were given the choice of having a, a system that was under capacity or too much capacity, then I think growers would, would have the too much capacity option every time. Um, we saw last year and the year before 25 million tonnes of grain thereabouts each year. It was only about four to five, four to six million tonnes that was unable to be delivered, but the pricing impact 
of that shortfall was 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 felt across all 25 million tonnes. 16 past 12 on the country hour. Michelle Stanley with you. And you're hearing from Gary McGill from the PGA's Grain Committee, Alistair Falconer from the WA Grains Group and Mark Fowler with WA Farmers just talking about bringing in competition into the WA grain supply chain, in particular with this trans-shipping model where grain would be delivered to ports, shallow water ports, and then transported on transshipment vessels to deeper water. And I wonder what you make of what you're hearing from these three grain grower lobby groups. 0448 is the text line. I'd love to hear from you today. Uh, One person says, bring on teaports as soon as possible. We're sick of being bullied by the very top heavy CBH. Please put your name and location on your text as well. Really keen to hear from you and and find out where you are across this state. And that number, again, 0448 922604. Very keen to hear your point of view this afternoon. Would you back it? Would you move essentially from the CBH model to a new transshipment model if it came to town, 0448 Now, Gary McGill, talking about CBH, what do you think the CBH board members would be saying about this concept behind closed doors? Uh, look, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pretend to be an authority on what the CBH board or management might be thinking about this. I'd like to think, though, that they would consider this to be firstly complementary, that if there is competitive elements and forces that unfold as a consequence, they would welcome that and would be pleased to participate in that and would have uppermost in their mind that uh, these additional pathways to to the market, as Mark has correctly described it, uh, would be beneficial to the grain farmer of Western Australia, uh, who are their members, and um, would, I'd like to think they would think in that way, and I'm confident that they would. Mark, where would this kind of model really leave CBH? I mean, wouldn't you essentially be asking growers to be working against themselves by bringing competition into the state? No, I don't think so, Michelle. I think competition would be useful to have in this space, not only because it will generate localised competition around those new ports, for, and we've seen it with Bungie, I farm in the catchment where bungies source their grain from and there has been more competition in that area, particularly in the last couple of years. They've had a, a supply chain that hasn't been as backloaded and they've been able to offer pricing which has been very competitive. Competition also often brings greater transparency. At the moment, there's not a lot of focus on upcountry costs and, how, um, and what they are all the way to the ship's rail and possibly you would see more transparency around that. So there was a mention of a couple on the West Coast, one on the South Coast. Do you know at this stage where where the, the shallow water ports could be established? There's about three sites they're talking about on the West Coast and one on the South Coast. Uh, it's probably... Uh, we're, we've got some general awareness of the general areas. And what, what's and some the of them, general some, some of them are Some of them are quite obvious. They're outside the main port of Geraldton and Quinana. So we're talking the Dongras, the the, the Durians um, and the Lancelands and then further south to the Hopetowns. They're the broader areas 
that I think they are looking at and uh, and then they will start looking, if, if that proves to be uh, appropriate for them, that, that they will then look at the upcountry aggregations to support those. But I don't think that's all been settled yet and we're not privy to those uh, minutiae details really. It's uh, a matter for the proponents. What I would like to say is that you know we don't see this as competition against CBH. Uh, Mark was at pains to explain earlier uh, of how this was to be a complementary concept, and we we absolutely see that. I'm sure Alistair does too. Uh, but, but in a way, you're, you're taking grain out of what would go, be going through CBH. So how is that not competition? Uh, well, it is competition, but we don't see that it's against CBH. We see comp- CBH uh, reacting positively to this. Lots of uh, positive things will emerge from the concepts of competition and the effect of it. We're already talking about uh, the potential for greater volumes of grain in, produced from Western Australia for various reasons. And we see this as a complementary additional pathway. And there's already uh, some thoughts, and we have some, I, I at least have some understanding that there are other potential opportunities at, uh, of a conventional port outloading that are being considered by people around the state of Western Australia, all feeding into this necessity uh, to ensure that we can get additional additional capacity to get grain into our markets. How far away could this be? You sound pretty confident that it is going to become a reality, Gary. So how far away could it be before it it gets into operation? The proponents have indicated to us that it could be about a four-year program. So it's a big job, and uh, but we have a degree of confidence, uh, you know, after working with them and seeing what they how they've done it over there, that they'll be pretty serious about what uh, is likely to take place in Western Australia. If it is, say, four years away, once you know you get through all of the approvals and the financials and all that kind of thing. I mean, CBH has announced recent investments into its supply chain. I think last year it announced four billion dollars over the next ten years into network mm-hmm. infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, a month ago, just over a month ago, four hundred million dollars into its rail fleet with locomotives and, and wagons. So, given the t- the length of time it would take for this transshipping model to come into WA and, and be operational, would CBH not have already addressed? some of those concerns which have sort of led to the investigation of this model, Mark Fowler? The model was put together before we were talking about the possible ban of the live sheep trade. And we've worked with CBH on that and we've signed undertakings to support them on that and we continue to support them on that. The most important asset in the West Australian grain supply chain is the CBH network and and nothing changes in that space. And we, we don't think that what we're talking about today should in any way compromise the full effort by CBH and the WA government to realise that plan. What we're saying is that we know that there's going to be more tonnes created with, with the live sheep ban. We know that the productive capacity of the West Australian cropping industry has, is, has grown very fast. Um, when this Path to 33 strategy was put together, it was before we had two 25 million tonne harvests. So we're already at the top end of what's been projected. We would like to see all the capacity options available to growers in this, in this scenario, particularly to deliver that crop to its market before the Northern Hemisphere uh, harvest occurs. We think that it's important to um, to, to allow this new player to, to progress its projects. We see real significant benefits to the WA growers. So we would say that to CBH, that fundamentally look at what's in the interests of, of, of the WA grain grower. That's my job, that's Gary's job, that's Alistair's job. And we're of the opinion this should be looked at very closely 
This is not something that requires grower support. We don't have a statutory monopoly in this space anymore. They don't need grower approval, but it is helpful to have that grower approval because they will need patronage. Um, you know, they'll, they'll want support of the government and that will be informed by what growers think. So for all of those reasons, we think that growers, CBH, the WA government, should look at this closely and, and embrace it as an opportunity, not as a threat. I know when we spoke in the studio last year with Belinda, the three of us were here, uh, amongst uh, the feedback and reaction from the growers who listened to those interviews, one aspect of their feedback was the unity of purpose of the three farm grain groups in this matter. And um, that was very well recognised. And now we just we haven't done this or got together just for that purpose, but that's been the outcome. And I, we think this is really, really important uh, for the grain growers out there, those who are members of the organisations or non-aligned, of which we know there are many, uh, to know that the grain uh, grower representatives uh, have, a, as I said, a unity of purpose in... in uh, uh, in sort of encouraging or looking at this uh, circumstance in our grains logistics. That's a new development in Western Australia, which I think should be noted. If I can add to what Gary just said, I think um, we've been working together, myself, Alistair and Gary, on a number of issues, and that's been working very well. Whilst there are a lot of people that would like to see a single body representing farmers in Western Australia, um, there are definitely advantages to having three bodies when they agree. When three bodies agree and can work together and, and have a common purpose that's articulated clearly, that's quite compelling and has its own power because what you can infer from that is that it represents the full spectrum of opinion in the farmer groups or in, within the farmer body um, and that has its own power. Of course, it doesn't work as well when we disagree, um, but um, it, it, it certainly has its own power and it can be quite effective. Mark Fowler... Alistair Falconer and Gary McGill, thanks for your time on the country out today. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. Mark Fowler is the president of the WA Farmers Grains section. Alistair Falconer, chair of the WA Grains Group, and Gary McGill, chair of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association Grains Committee. Also, farmers, and I'm very keen for your thoughts on this topic. 0448 922604 is the text line. What do you make of what you have heard about a new company coming into WA? Bit of competition in the market, zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Gruther says, I think you'll find they already have a site organised between Durian Bay and Dongra. Thank you for that. And Mark on the South Coast doesn't support duplicating shipping and handling in WA. CBH is spending vast amounts of growers' money to increase capacity and growers don't want this capital spent twice. Let CBH increase its logistics to ports at ports that, have, that already have excess capacity. It's transferring grain to port, which is the main issue. Thank you for that, Mark. 0448922604. And Matthew says he's disappointed to hear what Mark Fowler from WA Farmers has just said in that the live sheep, ex, uh, live sheep export industry will close. Does he not want to save it? Uh, Matthew... Uh, Thank you for your text as well, 0448922604. Let me know what you think uh, this idea of competition. It sounds like it is on the way in the Great States grain supply chain with a potential trans-shipping arrangement coming in. 28 past 12. You're with Michelle Stanley. 
for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt is saying Malaysia pushed ahead with its suspension on live imports of cattle and buffalo from Australia despite his department's efforts to reassure them of our disease-free status. And Senator Watt says since Indonesia halted imports from four facilities last month over concerns about lumpy skin disease, officials have been working with all trade partners to give them confidence LSD is not in Australia. He says so far Malaysia is the only country which is after more evidence. So similarly to Indonesia, Malaysia have asked for uh, testing results and evidence that we are free of lumpy skin disease. So we're in the process of finalising that testing now. Um, We'll be presenting that as quickly as we can to both Indonesia and Malaysia with a view to getting that trade reopened. But the most important message both for us here in Australia and overseas is that Australia is free of lumpy skin disease. Let's have a look at a timeline, Minister, what if we could. When was the ban from Malaysia put in place, from the Malaysian government put in place? That, that happened a few days ago, uh, that, we were fir- that we were first advised uh, that Malaysia intended to pause exports. Our, our officials had been engaging with all uh, our markets when Indonesia made its decision uh, to assure all of our Asian markets that we're free of lumpy skin disease. Uh, and fortunately, Malaysia is the only other country that has taken action at this point in time. Um, but despite those assurances uh, a few days ago we were advised that Malaysia intended to pause exports. Uh, We we stepped up our efforts at that point in time to to convince them that there was no need for that to occur but that is obviously a decision they've chosen to make Uh, and, and since then the pragmatic decision has been to try to meet their requirements and demonstrate through testing results that we are free of LSD and that's that's what we're in the process of doing now. Have live exporters lost money on this? Have boats been bound for for Malaysia and been stopped? I'm not aware personally of any vessels uh, that at this stage that were bound for Malaysia that have been stopped, but I think it's reasonable to expect that that may happen. Uh, certainly there have been vessels that were bound for Indonesia that have been stopped from, from going, and that's, that's disruptive and financially costly for the people involved, and that's why we've been throwing everything at it to try to get this sorted out as quickly as we can. Uh, we respect the fact that our trading partners have a right to make their decisions and, and we just need to uh, get, get the results to them as quickly as we can. And just to be clear, Minister, the distinction between Malaysia and Indonesia is that um, cattle can still go to Indonesia from Australia but from four specific uh, yards, four specific export facilities, whereas it's a, a blanket ban um, in terms of Malaysia? Yeah, that's correct. So Indonesia uh, are only have only suspended exports from four particular yards across northern Australia and the reason for that is that those four yards were the source of the 13 cattle that tested positive in, in, in Indonesia but every other yard in Australia is able to continue exporting to Indonesia so the trade hasn't stopped as a whole. Malaysia is different. They have imposed uh, a, an across the board ban or suspension on live cattle and buffalo exports from Australia. It's obviously a much smaller market than Indonesia but still an important one and we want to restore that as quickly as we can. Has the Australian government been able to cite um, some of the data that Indonesia's put forward these claims that lumpy skin has been found? Have you seen yeah, that? Uh, certainly our biosecurity officials have and, and, I, and I don't think that there's any doubt that uh, 13 cattle from Australia have tested positive to lumpy skin disease but our very strong view is that that occurred when they arrived in Indonesia. Um, we don't have lumpy skin disease in Australia, Indonesia does. Uh, we suspect what is most likely is that they were infected quite early after their arrival. Um, Indonesia 
wants to be convinced of that, um, that's their right and that's what we're now in the process of doing. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt speaking with Ali Felton-Taylor about the news Malaysia has suspended imports of cattle and buffalo from Australia over fears they could be infected with lumpy skin disease. Murray Watt says the next step is to finalise testing and analysis and then compile a report he hopes will convince both Malaysia and Indonesia to lift their suspensions. 28 to 1, Tony Carr is here with you with the news headlines. Good afternoon to you, Michelle. A former WA Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Stephen Dawson, says he's disappointed the state's Liberal leader has withdrawn her support for the proposed Indigenous voice to Federal Parliament. Libby Metham, who previously indicated she'd vote yes in the upcoming referendum on the issue, has revealed she no longer supports the process. Mr Dawson has described her decision as an amazing backflip. A 41-year-old Aboriginal prisoner has died at Albany Regional Prison. The Department of Justice says the man was found unresponsive in his cell yesterday afternoon. Prison staff provided first aid until paramedics arrived at the site. The man was rushed to Albany Health Campus but could not be revived. And homicide squad detectives are investigating the death of a man at Quanana Beach in Perth South. Police say paramedics were called to an incident on Beach Street just after 6 o'clock yesterday evening and found an injured man in a car park. The 56-year-old man could not be revived and died at the scene. It's believed the man may have been involved in an altercation prior to his death. Michelle, there'll be more news at one o'clock. Thank you very much, Tony. Let's head straight to the Bureau of Meteorology. Luke Huntington is with you. How are things looking in the southern half of the state over the next few days, Luke? Yeah, afternoon, uh, Michelle. So we've had a sort of a, a rain shower band uh, over the area uh, for the last um, 24 hours or so, and it's uh, persisting throughout today. Um, sort of the, the main area of showers and rain is now through um, the central west district, through this, the wheat belt, and then into eastern parts of the southeast coastal district. So that's what we'll see with the majority of the rainfall the remainder of the t- today. Um, no real significant falls to speak of, um, maybe around 5 to 10 millimetres. Some places may see isolated falls up to 20 millimetres. Uh, we do have some thunderstorms forecast over the southern parts of uh, the Goldfields area today. So in that area, they may receive a little bit more up towards that, those totals, but otherwise uh, light falls. Um, and then... In the other areas, sort of around the lower west, into the Great Southern, down to the Albany area, Bunbury, um, we've got just more isolated showers forecast remainder today, so only light falls. Um, as we head into tomorrow, the cloud band will persist. Um, it'll move a little bit further east, away from the west coast, though. So the uh, the areas of um, increased rainfall will be over that um, sort of north, far northeastern wheat belt uh, tomorrow, and then maybe just along the the coastline between Albion and. Sprints area, but otherwise the remainder of the ag areas and the southwest land division only getting between sort of the one to two millimetres, so not too much around tomorrow through most parts. Um, and then the rain band uh, sort of contracts eastwards on Sunday, so to be all over sort of the southeast of the state. There will be some remnant light showers over inland and along the uh, the south coasts, but generally one to two millimetres is forecast um, through the southeast coastal district, the wheat belt, and eastern parts of the Great Southern may get a light shower just along the south coast and also through the southwest district. Um, then heading into Monday, that's the day where the showers will mostly clear, but there are still some persisting um, just through the lower west and southwest districts, maybe into the Albany area as well, um, just in the onshore flow. 
on Tuesday. That's where we see the next significant uh, front moving through the Southwest Land Division. Um, and when I say significant, it um, will move right through the Southwest Land Division sort of during Tuesday and Wednesday, but it doesn't look like it's going to deliver too um, many significant areas of rainfall. Um, mainly widespread falls of 5 to 10 millimetres with the odd isolated fall up to 20 millimetres along that sort of that southwest coastal area. Um, doesn't look um, severe at this stage, um, but it does look like it will move right through the southwest land division. Um, probably not getting not probably not getting quite um, significant into the Esperance area um, where it's been pretty dry. Okay, and in the north, it's a little bit cloudy outside my window in Caratha today. What's happening across the uh, the northern and eastern parts of the state? Yeah, through the north, uh, it's uh, through well through the Pilbara Kimberley area. Uh, there's not too much going on. Um, there was a little bit of cloud around, yeah, as you mentioned, through the Karatha area. Just looking at the satellite, um, it has mostly cleared at the moment. But yeah, that cloud's not really doing anything, not creating any precipitation. So um, pretty much clear conditions expected um, for the for that Pilbara Kimberley area for at least the next uh, four days at least. Um, but through the eastern parts and central parts of the state, so through the Goldfields, Euclid area, we are seeing that rain band are persisting so um, over that southern gold fields will be the focus of the rainfall over the next few days um, probably 10 to 20 millimetres as possible each day through um, the southern gold fields so even that probably even includes Kalgoorlie, the Norseman area and also that western Eucla area before it does contract um, into the Eucla on Sunday and then clear by Monday so it's really just done um, the next few days for the central and eastern parts of the state in terms of rainfall. How about any warnings about the state today, Luke? Uh, there are no warnings current. Very good. Luke Huntington from the Bureau of Meteorology. And Richard Hudson joins you with well, a fair, fair amount of rainfall today, Richard, and I'm not joking this time. Uh, what have you got? Yeah, not too much in the northern and eastern forecast districts. In the Kimberley, Pilbara, Interior, the Eucla district and out on the islands, there was no rain recorded at all. In the Gascoigne, Ningen Station topped it with two, and in the goldfields, Norseman had a bit of a downpour with 10 mils. A fair bit more in the southwest Land Division forecast districts, though. In the central west, Barberton and Canterbury had six, Mora five, Nambung Station had six mils over seven days, New Norcia five to seven mils. Again, if I give a range, it means there's a number of rain gauges in that area, and I'm grouping them together. Perenjury had eight, Whalabing five. In the lower west, Ankatel had five. Bickley, Bindern and Chidlow, eight mils. Bolgart, Bin and Bungendore had seven. Dwelling up five. Jinjin, ten. Glen Eagle, nine. Jandicott, eight. Jaredale, six. Julemar Forest, seven. Carnot, six. Carrigullen North, eight. Lake Chittering, six. Lancelin East had five. Millenden and Minston Park, six. Mullubini, eight. Moondarbrook, seven. Mount Solis and Mushay recorded six mils, Mundaring eight, New Nile and Pierce at the Raft Base seven, Rolly Stone nine, Tamala Park, Wanneroo and Waruna recorded five, 2J East six, Watning seven, Werribee six and Whiteman Park had seven. In the southwest, Bailing Up didn't get any, uh, Collie six, Harvey seven, Logebrook five, Mount William six, Mile Up five, and then in the southern coastal region, a little bit to get through. Esperance had eight to nine mils. Lort River, seven. Mount Howick, 14. Munglin up, 10. Munglin up West had nine. Oakmarsh Farm, 10. Pleasant Valley, nine. Ravensthorpe, eight. Salmon Gums, 10. Tolina Downs, nine. And the Duke had 11. And in the central wheat belt, some welcome rain. Amory Acres, seven. 
Ardith and Babakin, eight. Belka East, nine. Ben Cubbard and Beverly, eight. Gee, Beverly had a good win on the weekend against Keller and Tamman. Ooh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Bonnie Dune, seven. Uh, Bonnie Rock, five to six mils. Burrican, five. Burracoppin, South, ten. Kadoo, five. Kalji and Cow Cowing, six. Kodjkodjan, nine. Cunderton Airfield at seven. Doodlekine, 11. Doongan Peak, eight. East Beverly had eight. Uh, I won't go on again about Beverly. Ajanding six. Uh, Gamaling, Happy Valley, and Jerome all recorded seven. Grabble had 11. Uh, Juridine, six. Kellerberen, eight to nine mils. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, Corder, seven. Long Forest, six. Meckering, North, eight. And Meriden, ten. Moorine Rock, Mount Hardy and Mount Noddy, 7 mils. Mount Walker, 13. Mount Westdale, 9. Muckenboodin, 5. Muresque, 6. Nanjinan, 10. Narrambeen, 8. Northam, 5 to 6. Nungarran, 9. Quadney, 7. Quereding, 8 to 10. Shackleton, 8. Southern Cross, Training West and Whale all recorded 7. Tamman, 8. Westonia, 9. Wongan Hills recorded 5. Yangadine and Nattering, 7. Yilgarn, South, 11. York, 6 to 7 mils. York Rakine had 9. Then in the Great Southern, Boddington North, 5. Burralee, 9. Brookton, 8 to 10. Bullye, Colorado, Corrigin and Culford all recorded 7. Coondi, 9. Darken, 5. Dragon Rocks, 8. Graham Rock, 10. Holt Rock, 13. Hyden, 10. Condinan, 7. Cookran, 5. Coolan had 7 to 8 mils. Queda, 7. Lake Grace, 6. Lake King, 14. Magenta Dam and Maradong and Mordetta all recorded 7. Mount Madden East, 13. Narragin, 5. Newtigate, 8. And at the research station, 7 mils. Pingaring, 13. Pingley had 9 to 10 mils. Pingrup East, 6. Wandering, 7. Wickipen had 6 to 9 mils. Wilgarra and Williams, 5. And Yeelaring East recorded 8. Michelle, yesterday we were going through the small amount of rainfall figures, but we've actually had quite good winter rain in a, a vast sections of particularly the grain-growing regions here in WA. I know some have missed out, but um, yesterday, as you heard, we just mentioned that East Gippsland in Victoria has been pretty dry. There's other parts of the eastern states are also dry, and as you're aware, Alice Marshall's our ABC rural reporter based in Kununurra in our north, but Alice grew up on a merino sheep and dryland farming property near Walgett in northwest New South Wales, and that's where her parents still farm today. And they haven't had much rain at all this winter. So she decided to give her dad, Richard, a call while he was standing out in the paddock in between feeding the sheep to, f- to find out what the country's actually looking at like uh, right now. Hi, Dad. Hello, Missy. What does home look like at the moment? Um... Yeah, well, we seem to have uh, dropped back into a uh, uh, very much 17, 18, 19 mode. And so it is starting to get a bit dusty and um, losing a bit of our ground cover. We're back full feeding and uh, everything's very normal again. How much rain have you had sort of in the year? Well, we had a um, you know great season last year um, as far as rain goes. And it uh, stopped raining sort of halfway through November. And we've had about 100 mils since since then. And 100 mils, not in big falls either, in sort of little tiny falls? No, no I think the, the biggest fall would be 20 mils that we've had. Nothing really to promote growth. And have you put any crop in? No, we, 
we did have subsoil moisture, probably um, six or seven inches down, and um, but you know it was just too risky, really, uh, to do that. We possibly could have gone in with faber beans, but it, it was just a bit deep for our machinery. And um, some people have, have had a go, and uh, I think there's been some mixed results. But most people are spraying out what results they have achieved. So it's it's just been uh, too dry to to really get a a good start on. What do you think rain wise then for the months ahead? Oh well, it's certainly not looking optimistic at all. Uh, I think even the, the the bureau is admitting now that the next three months are, are probably completely dry, almost. When it rained in early 2020, <laughs> after the worst few years ever, when remember when we were having a dust storm sort of every afternoon and we'd be mustering sheep and the dogs would just have um, an inch of dirt on their tongues in the dust. <laughs> their That's tongues right. were all brown. That was on the end of three years of, of no rain or basically not enough rain to, to even talk about. Um, so we're, we're a long way from that. Um, you know, we're another 12 months from that scenario. And we'll, we stock very conservatively and, and try and uh, just eke out what little feed we've got and maintain as much ground cover as we can for as long as we can. But I'm just sort of hoping that we won't get a three-year run like we did last time. Last time you said that you wanted to blow up the feed trailer when it rained in 2020. Are you glad that you didn't? <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have been a, a happy um, party. I think a lot of people probably wanted to blow up their feed trailer. We've actually, we've actually bought a, a new feed trailer and... Um, we're getting through the, the feeding a little bit easier now than what we did last time <laughs> with scales and a little bit more accuracy maybe. won't buy a new tractor, but we'll buy a new feed trailer. Yes. <laughs> with stock and wool prices at an all-time low, um, you'd be Doesn't it just feel like we've just had three god-awful years in 2017, 2018, 2019, two even though you say good years, good in the way that we got a heap of rain, but then all the chickpeas were flooded last year, like good, but almost too good. It's like when it rains, it pours, and then all of a sudden the tap just turns off and we're back to just a dust bowl again. Does it just feel like it, it's just oscillating between these two extremes? It, it is, and that's like I was saying, it, it, it would appear that that's what the, the weather people are telling us we need to get used to. Um, I'm sort of hoping that we will get some normal years in between at some stage. That's Richard Marshall. He runs a merino sheep and dryland farming operation in northwest New South Wales and we're speaking with his daughter, Alice Marshall. She's our rural reporter based in Kununurra. Things not looking good in terms of rainfall over in that part of the world. The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. It's 12 to 1. Good to have your company this afternoon. Western Australia's long-awaited pastoral land reform came into effect yesterday, bringing with it the new diversification lease. Uh, The pastoral land reform does have a new name, though. It's the Land and Public Works Legislation Amendment 2023. 
not so catchy. Uh, Some of the amendments include a possible 50-year pastoral lease extension, diversification permits. If you have one of those, it'll be transferable when you sell your property. Pastoral rent methodology, that's going to be changed up. Uh, And the Pastoral Lands Board will also have some new powers, things like being able to remove a specified number of stock from properties. But as I mentioned, the big one, the big change is this brand new diversification lease. The state government says it'll free up some of the currently underutilised Crown land so it can be used for things like renewable energy, carbon farming and Aboriginal economic development. David Stoke runs Anaplane Station just south of Broome and he's welcomed the reform but believes this is still a missed opportunity. Yeah, look, there's definitely some positive uh, elements to, to the reform that statutory right of renewal, uh, the automatic transfer of diversification permits uh, when you sell the lease um, and the ability to increase your lease term to 50 years. Um, so that, that could be a benefit for a number of pastoralists. So there definitely are positives, but um, uh, plenty of missed opportunities uh, in, in the reform as well. And what do you see as those missed opportunities? I mean, the legislation was rushed through um, and the, the government didn't really take on board any feedback. And as, as we saw with the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act, that definitely produces suboptimal outcomes. Some of the missed opportunities were to align the Land Administration and of um, Native Title Act, uh, particularly for the definition of pastoral purposes. So that would have um, clarified, you know, what the pastoralist can and cannot do on on their lease with a diversification permit. So that was a big one. Uh, you know, another big one was the automatic right of renewal, which, which should have been part of this legislation, but unfortunately the government didn't consider it at, at, at any time. So that, you know, that's definitely... A missed opportunity as well. Where to from here? Uh, well, uh, it's you know the new act in. I mean, I don't think the government's going to change anything now. So, you know, it's up to pastoralists to pursue some of those uh, opportunities. You know, particularly, um, you know, around that the ability to extend your lease term. So that's um, you know that's something that uh, needs uh, clarification from the Department of Lands on on the process that you, you need to go through. Can we talk a little bit more about the diversification lease and and what you think about that? Uh, well, the diversification lease uh, it will certainly suit the mining and uh, other other industries. Uh, it won't be uh, much use to a pastoralist, just given the um, difficulties uh, in converting you know the one tenure to the other. You know, particularly around native title and all the issues associated with that. So, I mean, look, it's been called the billion billionaires lease uh, before for, for a reason. I think it'll be expensive, um, you know, to put in place, but which would be okay if you're doing a big uh, renewable energy project or a, a you know a big mining project. But you know, it won't uh, help. Uh, your average parcelists uh, diversify the range of activities that they're currently doing on, on their lease. 
That's David Stoke from Anaplane Station, south of Broome. He was speaking with Alice Marshall. Rebecca Tomkinson is the CEO of the Chamber of Minerals and Energy in WA. She doesn't think the diversification lease is just for billionaires and says it's important for pastoralists and the resources sector to work together to make this new legislation work. It is critically important to meeting our net zero by 2050 and, of course, the ambitions by 2030 and being able to adapt and utilise the land uses for sustainable um, wind farms and solar farms and, and, you know, also different hydrogen applications and really looking at how we can partner as an industry to bring on board those clean energies um, and at the same time utilise the land holdings that that we have across industry. So it is a big day. Um, It's a really significant one because it does take us a step closer to the those ambitions that we all share as West Australians to ensure that we are able to reach net zero by 2050. And we know that that means we need to do more mining activity than we've ever done before, but also that we have this significant build in bringing on board those renewable energy sources such as wind and solar. And of course, it's not lost on anyone in the Pilbara, the significance of the um, energy sources of sun um, and wind and how many projects are underpinned by that at the moment. So this is a big day and it is a great announcement by the state. What difference will having this lease make to compared to, say, operations a year or two ago if, if this lease wasn't brought in? Like, what difference does it make to have it? What it makes is it means that we can utilise different purposes for the land in the same place and it's going to give us a streamlined ability to have those approval pieces in place as well because it allows us to be able to use the land in a different context and setting. Um, it also prescribes uh, the, in, the protections around what needs to be in place and the land parcels that can be utilised for that purpose. So it'll help us be able to accelerate the bringing on board of those renewable energies. What types of renewable energies are you hoping will be able to take advantage advantage of the lease? So we're definitely seeing that our the application of wind farms um, particularly and solar farms uh, because of course uh, many of our different operators across the region um, have been looking at renewable energy sources for a number of years and there's a number of different projects in many different places in the Pilbara uh, where we have already applied that and this accelerates the ability to put on ground the, the wind farms and the solar farms and to to be able to join up that energy grid. How do you see your member companies working alongside or in collaboration with the pastoral industry when we're talking about this new lease and, and pr- potential projects? I think that collaboration is really important to industry and, and obviously being able to ensure that both are able to uh, deliver the uh, I- ingredients for their respective operations. So the pastoral piece in being able to still have the land holdings um, that enable strong agricultural outcomes at the same time working together because those energy sources are mutually applicable, uh, really strong common use infrastructure that can be utilised by the pastoral industry as well as by us uh, in the mining and resources sector. I've heard pushback from pastoralists to say that the diversification lease is a billionaire's lease. That's how it's been described to me by multiple people because they see it for the Andrew Forests and the Gina Reinharts of the world. What do you feel? How do you, how do you react to hearing that? 
pastoralists just feel like they're not in this discussion around the lease and it is just for the billionaires of the state? I think that it is really important, obviously, with the different mining uh, organisations and both big and small that are able to utilise the application of the technologies. And I think that's the piece that we need to come together and really work collaboratively on. It is important that everyone is able to ensure that their industry is sustainable as well. And I think that's an important conversation to be able to support each other in looking at how we can meet those decarbonisation ambitions, but at the same time also develop those technologies and put in place where it's appropriate those structures such as wind farms and solar farms to be able to support those changes. Rebecca Tompkinson is the CEO of the Chamber of Minerals and Energy in WA, speaking there about the new uh, public land and public works legislation amendment 2023, which uh, officially came into effect yesterday. It's four to one. This week on Landline, the top ends data cowboy. We know exactly what each animal is been treated with but also what they've been fed we put the hay records in any pellets that they get fed in the yards they get all that information as well and the country community backing its own solar energy project it was the brainchild of five or six of us it's the classic kitchen table discussion that's landline sunday at 12 30 on abc tv and streaming on abc iview off to the news very shortly. First, though, the bull market is back after a few weeks off. It's opened slightly down this week. The Eastern Market Indicator down three to close at 1,176 cents a kilo clean. And the Western Market Indicator down seven to close at 1,332 cents a kilogram clean. Danny Burkett, can you run through the numbers, please? Yeah, we certainly um, opened on a lower note and the finals again took the full brunt of that. In Fremantle, 18 micron fell 40 for the week, closing at 15.55. 19 micron fell 45, closing at 14.50. 20 micron off 15, closing at 13.80. 21's off 10, 22's off 5, 21's 13.50 on the close, 22's 13.20. If we look at the Eastern Market Indicator in US terms, that fell 22 cents for the week. So the falling dollar last week certainly did help absorb some of that loss in Australian terms. It was the place in WA to sell your wool this week. We averaged $1,492 a bale over the floor for every bale. That was higher than the other two centres. I'd just like to do a quick comparison to where we were this time last year. If we look at 18 microns, they have fallen $3.80 clean through the year. 19 microns have fallen $1.60 through the year. But the good news is 20 microns are fully firm on where we were this time last year. 21s were actually in a positive, 55 clean better than 12 months ago, and 22s also slightly better than where they were this time 12 months ago. So it's just showing the trends for the 12 months. It has been um, the falling fine end and the strengthening of the mediums as they certainly chase um, those types to fill those orders. Yeah, right. Uh, who are the buyers this week, Danny? We had TNU uh, led the charge. They took 5,395 bales to be exact of Merino fleece wool. Now, if we look at that, it was 22% of the offering across the country. If we look at that in capital outlay, they roughly had over $10 million just in fleece wool alone to open the account for the week. In second place, Tech Wool Trading, they took 16% of the Merino fleece wool over the country. And Sequoia, 11.5%. So it's good to see another exporter come in in that third place. Endeavour will export 8.5%. In 
interesting note again, as I always say, Tech Bull Trading, a bigger player in the crossbreds at second place, Merino Skirtings at first place, and they were there in fourth place in the odd So Tech Bull Trading and TNU certainly driving the market as they have done uh, for the last six to eight months. And what are you expecting from next week? Sydney, Melbourne, Fremantle, we have just shy of 47,000 bales. I would suggest that you have, if you have Merino fleece wool that is free of VM and is of reasonable yield, 62s and 4s plus, you'll be all right. But the big losses this week, again, with a VM, any wool's carrying high VM certainly took the full brunt of discounts in the market. And I would suggest that we'll continue as we offer more and more of those types at this time of the year, which is quite getting quite unusual. Thank you, Danny Burkett. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.